Welcome to the Strata Leadership Show, a podcast designed to help you gain clarity, lead effectively, and drive results for yourself, your team, and your organization. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Miller. Today we have another friend of mine. I know it sounds like everybody we have on our show is a friend of mine, and I hope that they would be. But Scott Griffin is not just someone I know. This is someone that I regard as a friend, someone that has been a source of inspiration to me, and one of those people that um, you can just count on. And so I'm so thankful to have Scott joining us today from uh, his home in Southern California. Uh, Scott, welcome to the Strata Leadership Show. Thank you, Nathan. It's great to be here and great to be able to spend some time with you today. It's always a pleasure. Well, I got to know Scott a number of years ago when we were uh, working in Oklahoma City. Scott was one of the innovators in the field of oil and gas um, he was an innovator in understanding and dreaming about uh, what would it look like if a company focused on their people. And, and matter of fact, uh, through that process, really began to revolutionize how people uh, viewed employees, in my opinion, at least in the company where he was, was working. And one of the things that happened there was that they changed the, the title of your department. Scott, tell us a little bit about uh, that, that transition. Sure. So, you know, we had the traditional nomenclature that we were utilizing, uh, referring to the, the function as human resources, and that felt a little bit dated for me. Um, it felt uh, it wasn't something that ever really resonated. Um, it felt a little impersonal. Um, we don't call each other humans, uh, and we don't refer to people as being resources. And so, I don't exactly remember how it came about, but the CEO at the time, James Bennett, you know, we got involved in a conversation around this and he was even more passionate than I was about changing the name. It's, it's quite humorous, actually. We talked about it and a couple of weeks later, he, he calls me one night at about 8 p.m., the night before an earnings call with our investors. So I know he's still at the office and he's cramming, preparing for this important meeting. And he calls me up and says, hey, what are you thinking about this name change? You know, and I was like, wait a second, you know, you're, you're preparing for an investor call and this is important enough, you know, for you to pause. And so uh, I really appreciated his passion, you know, his, his foresight to think, hey, if we, if, if we use different language, maybe it will lead to people viewing what we're trying to do in a different light. And so we, we agreed to continue thinking about that independently of one another. And it was interesting because we both landed on the same place, which was people and culture, because it's like, these are people, these are people that matter to us. These are people that we've invested in to bring them into the organization. And they've in turn made a commitment back to the company. And the culture for me is all about the experience that they have. What's the day in the life of the employee going to look and feel like? Well, culture is going to determine that. And what are the key elements of culture? You know, and you start with that, that manager-employee relationship. You start with the friendliness of the atmosphere. Are, you know, are, are there unwritten rules and protocols? You know, kind of, a, is it a politically charged environment uh, that really hinders people's freedom of expression and their freedom to bring their genuine, authentic self to the workplace every day? We wanted to eliminate all of those things. And, and so for culture, it was, you know, hey, this culture is enriched by you having the freedom to be yourself and, and be comfortable and for us all to interact with each other 
irrespective of level or title or role. And, and that was really how that, that birth, that the adoption of those terms, uh, and, it, and it caught on. I mean, we, we wanted to be sure we were using a language that, that people would adopt and people weren't um, hesitant to speak. And, and it caught on. And, and, and since then, it's, it's, it's fairly prominent now across a lot of industries. I wouldn't claim that we were the first ones to think of it. We, we probably had it in the back of our mind somewhere that we had heard it before, but it was fairly revolutionary at the time for us. But it was, it was more than just bells and whistles. It was intended to mean something. You know, and we adopted at the same time, we adopted a, you know, a mission statement for our people and culture department, which was to, you know, really accelerate the growth and development of our people and to create an, an experience on a daily basis where they could thrive and that that would result in an increased level of contribution for them for the organization, one that would bring satisfaction to them and ultimately one that would bring greater reward to them. And so that's kind of the story. Looking back, I, I, I view it as a you know a highly uh, significant and, and effective you know kind of turning point in in the growth and development of that function and, a, and of my role in the organization as well. That was when I first uh, intersected with you, and the company that um, you're describing uh, has changed a great deal. Not because of the people who were there at the time, but because of investors and different things. But at the time, that company pound for pound, I can't imagine a place doing more to uh, create a, a learning environment, growth mindset type of, uh, of culture. And that's when I first intersected with you. And then we sat down and, and became friends and, and we would talk about all different types of things over lunch and a cup of coffee and whatever it was. And I began to see this theme in your life that was not just in the job that you had then or the job that you have now, or even the jobs that you had prior to the one where I met you. You were a person that valued people greatly. You, you saw what people could be and, and, you, and you thought, hey, if I, could, if I could contribute to their success, that would be worth the effort. When did that start for you? Let's go back into your story. When did you start looking at people and thinking, uh, I could do something to make life better for other people? You know, I think it was, it, it was during my undergrad years in college when I was really evaluating what, what direction do I wanna go? I had worked with youth you know, in the summers during, during college and really enjoyed that and wanted to be sure that I was in a, you know, in a functional capacity when I graduated that allowed me to continue to invest in the lives of other people. And that, that was what led me to the field of human resources initially. There weren't a lot of opportunities at that point in time in uh, HR. Uh, when I first came out of college, I, I took a job with the with the state government administering all of the federally funded employment and training programs. And so these were everything from, you know, economically disadvantaged young people to people in the middle of their career who had been displaced somehow. And, you know, I was writing grant proposals to secure funding for them to get a new education and transition to a higher demand occupation really very practical, hands-on, you know, helping, helping change people's lives. Uh, I moved from that into a, a corporate setting, but, that, but that's what drove me um, was how, how can I help other people, you know, find the path that they're looking for? How can I help them 
accelerate their journey toward success, the, the, the way success they envision it, not the way I envision it. And that's really kind of what's driven me, you know, for the past going on 30 years now is I, I wake up every day thinking, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be in a, in a role where I can, I think I can help somebody today. I, can, I think I can help them, uh, I can help the organization find a way to better leverage their talents and make sure we're uncovering some of their hidden talents to accelerate their growth and their development of new talents and to ensure that they have a sense of belonging in the organization so that the work is fulfilling, not, not just financially rewarding, but, but fulfilling to, to them as an individual. Uh, but it's, it's been a long journey. It's back really to that, that time point, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there at the University of Oklahoma, you know, working on my resume in the library with the checked out floppy <laughs> disk uh, that you had to get to access the computer back when software was something you carried around on a, on a floppy drive. So uh, so let's take that time machine uh, going back to the University of Oklahoma, uh, which really is uh, one of the great uh, universities. But if I go farther back, you know, now you, you live in Southern California and you're a part of the team at Rivian, but you moved to Southern California later in life. Tell us about where you grew up and, and your memories of being a kid. Absolutely. So, you know, I grew up right there in, in central Oklahoma. My, my parents were both public school teachers. They worked incredibly hard. They were very committed to the students uh, my father was a coach. He was a early on, he was a football and track coach. And later he was a cross country and track coach. I grew up at the football field. We would go to three football games a week, you know, freshman, junior varsity and varsity. And then if I was playing, you know, in some lower level league, we went to that as well. And, and that was just life. You know, my, my big man on campus moment came when I was about nine years old, when, when my, my dad had the the schedule for the year printed on one of those little plastic footballs and the colors of the school. And, and myself and one of the assistant coaches' sons got to go out at halftime and throw those little footballs into the, into the stands. Oh, I was the most popular. Mark, Mark Brazil and myself who were the most popular kids on campus, you know, because everybody wanted one. We only had so many. But, but those were the influences that really affected me. My, my father's uh, commitment, you know, to help, you know, help, help students and help athletes, you know, achieve their dreams, you know, that a lot of students found their way to college education opportunities because of their athletic capabilities. And he, he walked with them on those paths. And that it was very, very much a, an influence. I saw, saw my dad work really hard because he wanted more for his family than a public school teacher, you know, compensation package would provide. And so he worked really hard all, all summer. He had several businesses related to swimming pool operations and maintenance and management of public pools. And I grew up working there. I started working in a concession stand of a public swimming pool when I was seven years old. My father used to take me to the to the wholesale facility where we would purchase. He would ask me, hey, what's selling? What do we need to buy more of? You know, and uh, and then on the way home, he would say, hey, how much did we pay for that? How much are we selling it for? And this made me think about, you know, how hard you had to work to earn a dollar. And that, and that influenced me greatly. But it was probably the, that investment that I saw my parents making in, in students that had the greatest impact on me. So uh, a lot of uh, coaches' kids um, will kind of go one way or the other. They'll uh, really enjoy sports and, and really uh, participate in that, or, or they might not be involved at all. What was your path athletically? Yeah, so, you know, early on, I, I participated in the things that I was familiar with, football and, and track. 
you know, I can remember one time over here in my dad conversation with another coach and I heard him say, he's probably got the best hurdle for him I've ever seen. Uh, his problem is he just doesn't have any speed in between the hurdles. And I didn't know who he was talking about at the time. So later I asked him and, um, I left out the part about the speed. I said, Hey dad, who are you talking about? When he said, it's the best hurdle for him uh, you've ever seen. And he said, I was, I was talking about you, you know? And I said, Oh, so I'm the, I'm also the kid that doesn't have any speed between the hurdles. I, I guess I already knew that, but thanks for confirming, you know, but so that, that's what I did early on. I, I because of my dad's um, swimming pool business, I had access to, to swim when, when pools were closed. Uh, there were no public, uh, there were no indoor pools in the community I grew up in. There were no swim teams or anything like that. So kind of found my own path as a swimmer uh, because of those opportunities. And that was certainly what I was best at. And so when, by the time I got to high school, I, I just began swimming year round through different programs. And I was never great, but uh, I was competitive enough to enjoy it. My, my, my parents were always real super supportive of whatever path, you know, certainly athletically, you know, they had some academic requirements for me. I can remember in eighth grade, not being allowed to play uh, basketball because of my uh, grade and whatever math class I was struggling in at the time. But, uh, but, but swimming was probably maybe my, uh, my, my most decorated moment as an athlete, if you can call it that. So, Well, I know that you have uh, also enjoyed uh, running. Is that something you still do? I do, yes. I, I love track and field. You know, I mentioned growing up at the football field, but by the time I got to the University of Oklahoma, it was amazing. No matter where somebody else was from, they'd tell me the town they were from. If it was in Oklahoma, I, I usually knew their mascot and their school colors because I had been in track meets all over the country. My dad had started off at a smaller school, later coached at a big 6A high school. And so I had seen every school in the state. To this day, I love, you know, I, I got super excited just last weekend watching the, the runner from Uganda break the 5,000 meter record, world record, you know, that it held for more than 15 years. I follow it real closely. I, I love it. Made my way to Coos Bay with one of my sons a few months ago and took photos of the big Steve Prefontaine murals that are there. I still enjoy running. It's running for me is a, it's a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual experience. Uh, I get some of my, you know, it, it burns cortisol really fast for me. And it also allows me to, to think more clearly and kind of zoom out. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a big part of my life continues to be. So, so with all those experiences with a mom and a dad focused on uh, students for you, being able to see how uh, business works and to uh, be given the, the chance to really exercise that muscle. You, you find yourself moving into this emerging world of HR and you start with the, the state government and then you start moving into the corporate world, et cetera, et cetera. What would you say to someone who is thinking about uh, going into that world now? If someone was saying, you know, I want to be part of uh, HR OD, I want to be able to do things that really impact other people's lives. Uh, what would you say to them that uh, might be helpful in guiding them towards uh, the, the type of career that you've had uh, leading uh, departments and helping to construct experiences for people? That's an interesting question. And I think, you know, when I think about the function of HR in an organization, it's as, as a department, it has a very similar role that the role of a leader has, you know, HR will roll out programs to support activities of leadership, you know, like feedback and coaching and, 
you know, performance management and rewards and diversity and belonging. I mean, these things that maybe originate within HR really get legs through leaders in the organization. And so somebody, whether they're aspiring to move into HR or they're aspiring to move into leadership, my, my first question to them would be why? why? Why are you looking to do that? And if the answer sounds anything like power or prestige, I would really challenge them to, to second guess that or to think through that a little further. Or, or if it's, you know, that maybe they view leadership as the pathway to, to greater earnings. Those are all reasonable ideas and it's understandable why somebody might land there as they're thinking through what they want to do, but they're not good reasons for a career. They're not good reasons at all. And so you ask yourself why human resources is a, it's a foundational support mechanism of an organization. It's not what most companies do unless you're a staffing business or, you know, somewhere else in the human capital management space. HR exists so that so that we can scale, so that we can scale programs, we can scale size of, you know, of the, of the company, whether it's, you know, revenue growth or employee population size. And, and, and it's there to help the organization, the teams and the individuals be successful. That, that needs to be our motivation for, for working in that space. That needs to be our motivation for going into leadership because we have an interest in helping other people realize their full potential and contribute in a manner that is consistent with what the organization needs but it's also aligned with what talents the individual possesses and, and helping people navigate that and uncover that and, and emerge needs to be the, the energy source for why you work in that, in that space. It's interesting to me talking to different, list, to, to different uh, leaders just to listen in on their life stories and how many of them had backgrounds that connected to things like coaching and uh, teaching and ministry and things like that uh, where people were viewed as uh, really valuable. And it's interesting to me to hear you talk this through, but one of the things I've noticed about leaders is that there is no pain-free way to get to where you are. And so when you look back over your life and you think about the, the challenges that you have uh, had to um, overcome, you know, you, you've had those challenges professionally, I'm sure, personally, I'm sure. But when you look back on that time, and you think about the things that were the greatest challenges for you, what were some of the challenges that you felt like you had to overcome to be able to be where you are now? That's a great question. I think that, you know, you, you have to be willing, you know, the, the, the world's volatile, you know, and, and most industries will experience some period of volatility within, you know, their life cycle. And that volatility is painful on the people side. And so I think some people insulate themselves from that pain by not venturing out and, you know, embracing the employees the way they would like to because they want to avoid the pain of, of the tearing away when, when their space contracts and they have to, you know, downsize their organization. That's a painful event that I, unfortunately, in my career, I've been through that too many times to count. And I have found that as painful as that is, that it, it is a good marriage with someone who's highly empathetic, you know, and, and willing to invest in the employees and, you know, drive a, a, a culture and, and a, a scalable process that lends itself toward, you know, a high sense of belonging and connectivity throughout the organization, knowing even, even knowing that there's going to be risks if, if there's a, you know, if there's an event that, you know, that causes a downsizing and also knowing that people, you invest heavily in people and they move on. 
You have to be willing to do that as a leader. You have to be willing to do that as an organization. Part of our investment in people will be, the benefit of that will be realized by us, and part of that will be realized by others. And that, and you need to have a more macro view of your contribution to the world. I'm proud of the fact that there's people that I invested in who are now benefiting other organizations, even when I was in an organization that was competitive with, with those other organizations. We, we can't have a totally insulated, you know, introspective view of our commitment to our people. But I don't know that that gets quite at the heart of your question, but it's certainly something that because of my experiences, it dances around in my mind when I think about the, the pain associated with emerging and growing in the, in the functional career that I've had. No, it's a, it's a tough thing. To me, when you're talking about the at the right hand of uh, CEOs is the role that you're describing. Because the CEO can describe what a culture should be, but if the HR team is not hiring to that, is not uh, retaining people for that, if not uh, shaping people to, to help realize that dream, it doesn't matter. And so that growth mindset, <laughs> people want the outcome of, the, of it, but they don't want the pain that often goes with it. And one of the things I really respect about you is that after having been at the, the top of the heap, being a, an executive in, in this key role, creating these incredible programs. And back then when, you were, when we were working together on some different projects, one of the CEO's goals, the, the person that you referenced earlier, he just said flat out, we want to be the number one learning environment in our industry. And I don't know fully how that would be quantified, but it is difficult to imagine another place that would have been more aggressively pursuing that than you. So in the midst of all of that, here you are, you're, you're a highly respected uh, executive, you're, you're compensated uh, well, you're looking at your future, you decide a couple of things. One, uh, you, you've always in, enjoyed visiting California, you and your wife, and you say, hey, we're going to do this. So you bought the house and then later would end up moving out there. But then you also did something that was amazing to me. You went back to school. And you said to me before we got uh, on the air uh, today, you said, if things work out like, uh, looks like they will, you will have graduated with your second degree 35 years after the first one. Tell us about that experience. What is it like to go back to school to have that experience and to stay in learning mode uh, in, in that time of transition. Absolutely. So that, that was my number one goal when we made the transition to move to California was I wanted to put myself in a position to continue to learn. I turned down some opportunities work-wise that looked very similar to what I had done because I wanted to do something new. I wanted to experience a new um, industry. I wanted to be a part of something that I'd never been a part of before. I wanted to work in a capacity that was different. And I'm really very thankful to be a part of the incredible organization that I'm now a part of at Rivian. But, but part of that learning goal was also school. And it was something that had been on the back of my mind. I had, I had taken a couple of grad school courses that always allowed the demands of my work to kind of interfere with getting very far with that process. What's interesting is I'm, I'm not only am I the non-traditional student in that I'm quite a bit older than my classmates, I'm also non-traditional in my reasoning. I started a course for this fall, and one of the questions was, you know, what's your professional goal in the course? Well, I don't 
I don't know that I have a professional goal. I'm here to learn as much for my own benefit personally as I am. I'm not expecting to get this degree and it to catapult me into some place professionally that I've not been in before. Um, that, that's not why I'm doing it. But it, is, it has been quite uh, unique. It's a lot more technology driven. Um, I have yet to uh, you know, carry a backpack to any of my classes, but that's um, something that took a little bit of getting used to. Obviously, you know, the workplace has required me to stay current with my, you know, technology skills. So it wasn't a big leap, but, but it functions differently. But I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. I'm learning a lot. Um, I, I'm enjoying how some works that I was exposed to in undergrad back in the 80s uh, are still the prevailing thought leadership writings on those topics today, which is quite remarkable. And then in other, you know, subjects or explorations, uh, you, you discover that there's, they can't keep up. I mean, there's, there's writings, I'm, I'm reading writings right now that are just a few years old and they're so dated when you compare it against what's going on today. The, these ideas just can't keep current fast enough. Um, and it's, so that, it's quite remarkable. So that idea of, um, modeling learning and, and expecting that growth mindset to emerge and helping other people learn. What are some of the practical tips you might provide other people who are also wanting to get on that track? Uh, how do you get access to uh, things like you're just, you're describing? Are, are there, are there certain things that you would say, this has been helpful to me to um, provide a, a pathway to learning? podcasts like this thing, you know, is there anything like anything, anything like that, that is helpful to you? I think that, uh, you know, a couple things come to mind. One, and I know everybody's heard people say this, but you have to schedule time for yourself. You have to invest in yourself and you can't compromise that commitment. You have to continue to do that. And ideally you find a way to participate in some learnings that fit within your, your path. I know a lot of people that listen to podcasts, during their exercise routine or during their commute back when we were actually commuting and going to a facility for work. That finding a way to, to do something that fits within your routine, I think, is key to sustainability. But also finding something that works for you. I love to read. I really like to read physical books. I do read, you know, on my iPad. Uh, but also, you know, when, when I start a new class, I order the physical books. Um, I keep those books. And so find, finding what, you know, what really drives you. I, I think I probably could advance my career further, you know, a decade ago by pursuing higher education, maybe in, in business, but that wasn't my passion. You know, my passion is around communication and organizational leadership. So that's where I spend my time exploring and studying. But I think, I think people need, need to be flexible to find what will work for them. They also need to find minds that they respect, that they have access to, that they can, you know, grab a cup of coffee and ask a single question and, and explore that uh, with somebody who's maybe a step or two ahead of them in the journey. That, that's, a, that's a key piece of it. You can learn so much. It doesn't matter what you read. You can read fiction and learn. Uh, if you if you read reliable writers who are who are accurate, you know, in 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 their presentations, and so that that's that's what's worked for me the most. So the last question uh, for for me, I know that you have a busy day there at uh, Rivian today, but the last question for me, you are someone that um, is is just renowned for your sense of humor. And so when there are announcements being made at the company, when you're rolling out new things at the company, it was, almost became 
a problem because there was such an expectation of what's Scott going to do now? And whether it be a video or this or that, it was just a lot of fun watching people enjoy you not taking yourself all that uh, seriously. What do you think that the role of humor is uh, in the role in, in the uh, life of a leader? I think it's important. I, I think it needs to be authentic, you know, and not forced. You know, for me, humor's always been a big part of my life. I was, you know, I was always trying to do some sort of stand-up comedy in the talent shows. I think the first year I did that was in third grade. I didn't win, but hey, I kept at it. But I do think that for me, I mean, I love to laugh and I love to hear other people laugh. But more than anything, the reason I bring humor into the workplace as a leader is because it it allows people to relax. And if I can bring my, you know, genuine, authentic self to every encounter, I say things sometimes that other people are kind of shocked they, that I said it. Maybe they were thinking it, but didn't know how to articulate it, or maybe they just didn't allow space for it. And I think by bringing that and modeling that, it it, it allows other people to relax and, and know that it's okay for them to bring their uniqueness into the workplace as well. That, that's when we're at our, our strongest. You know, you hear, you hear about the term covering in the context of diversity, how, how people of different cultures and and races and ethnic backgrounds will will cover their true identity for acceptance and integration, assimilation into the workplace. But covering takes place with all types of you know personality traits and styles and belief systems and worldviews. And if if we can eliminate the need for people to feel like they have to cover some aspect of who they are, uh, we'll, we'll be stronger as an organization. We'll be stronger as a team. And, and the person will experience a much greater sense of belonging, fulfillment, and being a part of that organization. And, the, and that leads to increased efficiency and productivity and reduces attrition. I mean, there, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, the data is overwhelming, you know, to support, support those claims. That's why it works for me. I think it's, it's part of who I am, so I want to bring it. And sometimes people get it and appreciate it, and sometimes they don't. And that's okay, too. Well, Scott, I definitely appreciate you. And I uh, can say as a witness to the work that you've done, the people that you've worked alongside have known that they were cared about deeply and that there are literally hundreds and thousands of people who have better lives today because uh, you would dream about what could be done to make their life better. So I do appreciate you. I have a ton of admiration for the good work that you've done. Now that you're in Southern California and... Um, you're leading this new life at Rivian. I just want to express how proud I am of you, of making that decision that uh, I'm going to go chase the life that I wanted, the ideal self. And I think that that is a fantastic thing, especially with your servant-minded approach to leadership of how can I use my abilities to open the doors for other people. It's been great to have Scott Griffin on the Strata Leadership Show today. It's great to be a part of a community of leaders who want to use their abilities to make life better for others. And so today, as a leader, make the decision to set the tone, set the pace, and make it a great day. Thank you. Thank you.